Chapter Ten of Grim: The Story of a Pike. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rebecca Shertuti. Grim: The Story of a Pike by Svend Floron. Translated by J. Muir. Chapter Ten, in the marsh. A wide stretch of marshland, thickly covered with vegetation and difficult of access, with numerous large pools full of tussocks and rushes. Century-old peat pits ran side by side, connected with little watercourses or half-overgrown ditches. Willow and cotton grass covered the hillocks, and naze and headland ran out into the black water, in which were islands, sometimes fixed, sometimes floating. Whole little floating fields of frogbit and pondweed would shoot out from a bank and completely cover the bronze-colored water. Green and smiling they looked, and tempted the foot as a trustworthy bridge. But at a single touch with the tip of one's boot, the whole mass quivered and trembled. Down in the deep water, where the black horse leeches pushed their way along, and monster larvae with bent back and open jaws stood motionless, watching for prey among the refuse, grew the oddest water forests. They were neither hard nor stiff. Their stems consisted of slender stalks held up by the water. There were bluish-green, luxuriant fir forests and whole groves of palm-like bushes with red flowers upon long stalks. At the edges there were climbing plants which formed a matted web of stalks and fibers and bulged out in swelling clouds. What a curling and bending in everything down there! What pliant shapes! And everywhere there were little, fat, pug-like bastard carp, dozing and opening their mouths without ceasing, making double chins in their enjoyment, and rolling their eyes ecstatically. From the deep, clear lake with its shining waters, Grim had now come to these low, swampy banks. At first the change was somewhat sudden, but she possessed the ability of her kind to adapt herself rapidly to her circumstances. Nor did she at first have much difficulty in obtaining food. There were young bream and eels, as well as the pugs to go on with. But by degrees, as she grew bigger and the years went on, she had to make herself more and more omnivorous in order to exist. She was living, in a way, like a whale in a lake. In the winter especially things were difficult. In the lake, which had been her home for more than thirty years, it had been easy to manage. It was too big to be frozen over. Even in the severest cold the bottom springs kept large areas open. But this was not the case with the marsh, for here the air, during a long frost, became very close. The water took up the marsh gas from the decaying remains of animals and plants on the bottom, and could not give it off and renew itself with oxygen. 
Rim had then to go where flags and knotgrass pricked tiny, almost invisible holes in the ice. She found them by the gleams of light, and noticed that she could breathe freely at such places. With this exception, she generally kept at the bottom during the cold season, burying herself in the warm, fallen vegetation. There she lay and slept. Her blood circulated more slowly, and for days together she required no nourishment. But the torpid state was not complete. Now and then she had to move, and then she satisfied her hunger with mussels and snails, and would also examine the mud-shafts of the peat-pits. Here, in the muddy labyrinths, she came upon tench, olive-green fish with black backs. Their scales were very small, and their whole body covered with a thick layer of slime. They were coarse fish, with thick, leathery fins. Formerly she could never endure them, and had made use of them chiefly as a kind of healing remedy when she lived in the lake. When her mouth was full of pricks and scratches from fish-hooks, she would go into the mud to consult them and to get a healing plaster stuck upon her wounded snout by rubbing it against their slimy sides. But now, when hunger sharpened her appetite, she had to turn her former benefactors to another use, and get as much as possible out of the consultation. She therefore ate them with pleasure. In the summer she seldom touched them, but fattened herself on everything that came in her way. She would take a snake that swam across, a frog, a mouse, and if a water-rat made its appearance, she shot up under it and sucked it in at one mouthful. In this way she got on fairly well for a few years. One year, however, there was an unusually dry summer, and in order to find sufficient water she had to move from peat-hole to peat-hole, and often had to live for weeks at a time in the pools left in the deeper hollows. Fortunately for her, as the water sank, all the inhabitants of the bog gradually came together in these basins. She came across perch and carp, and eels, leeches, and toads were also, like herself, imprisoned here until the rain should once more bring an abundance of water. She continued to develop, but otherwise than before. Ferocity and cruelty were replaced by cunning and ingenuity. And like all the other pike in the bog, she soon learned to swing herself over the ridges from one hole to another, and even to cross land for short distances. She had the choice between dying of hunger and finding an expedient. It seemed as if that passage, long ago, from the flying heron's beak to the smooth surface of the water, had hardened her gills, and enabled them to bear the strong, drying oxygen of the air for a longer time. For she often ventured over ridges and peat-dams wider than a high road. When she could bear her hunger no longer, she ran herself aground and up into the grass, and then, bending herself together, leapt on in the direction of the new water. As soon as she was in the dry air, she could feel which way she ought to take, 
the neighborhood of water affected her sensitive skin and drew her the shortest way. Everything flickered in a golden mist before her eyes as she crept on, bending and leaping. It was in the early hours of morning, when the grass was wet with dew, that she made these expeditions overland. On one of these occasions she got into a large, deep pit where the crayfish population that annually migrated from the lake had their stronghold. All over the perpendicular, blackened sides of the peat-cutting, living crayfish claws opened at her. Day after day, for six months, she went hunting here, and had enough to do with making her way into the hard, perpendicular walls in which the nippers had their holes. She knew from her experience in the lake that the crayfish could neither steer nor change their course when, with flapping tail, they darted backwards through the water, and were therefore easily caught when once she had hunted them out. Only one ancient, muscle-scarred fellow, coal-black all over, and with one large and one very tiny claw, eluded her most ardent endeavors. It sat in a rocky hole, far in, its spear-armed head with the stocked eyes, resting pensively upon its two unequal claws. Once or twice it happened that she was aroused from her torpor at night by feeling a firm, hard grasp upon her body, and she darted round in a circle like a dog after its tail. But the nipper always knew when to let go. One day she was also obliged to leave this hole. She managed to break down the ridge between her and a neighboring pit, where she enjoyed a few months' ease and comfort. Here she passed the winter, and cleared the mud of every tench, every leech, and every snail. When spring came, she ate everything that came in her way. At this season, frogs and toads made their way in multitudes to the pools. The frogs lay croaking and croaking, and the toads barked and growled, all of them full of love and delight, and therefore an easy prey. Later on, she reveled in frogs' eggs, and swallowed great quantities of the fat, black yolks. Sometimes, too, she could feast on some long threads that were stretched about the reed-stubble. They were the eggs of the big toads, threaded like beads upon a string, and laid in the water to hatch. On the whole, she was glad of the frogs and toads. They kept on reappearing. Afterwards, too, when the little tadpoles began to swarm. She could no longer afford to be fastidious. She had to take everything, and not let a crumb be wasted. During the summer nights she was busy at the surface. The big, heavy moths, which often, in thoughtlessness or carelessness, settled on the water or on some floating straw, became her booty. She ate them, wings, straw, and all, like a hungry man trying to satisfy his appetite with prawns. No wonder that the teeth in her huge mouth gradually developed into something like the whalebone in the mouth of a whale. 
but a stomach with the cubic capacity of a hectoliter needed more than this. The bog is veiled in a steaming mist, which hangs like cloud lakes over the reeds. The moisture penetrates everywhere, and trembling drops hang from everything, and the thousands upon thousands of spiderwebs show up in all their marvelous workmanship. Thickets of willow and drooping birches cast black shadows all along the ridges and banks, and large, thick swarms of gnats hang silently in the air. Only a leaping fish or a bathing swallow disturbs the deep morning stillness. The great bog snail, with its horse-like head and bat-like ears, has come out of its shell, and is feeling everything that comes within its reach, groping its way along, and then with a jerk, dragging its spiral shell after it. Now it fastens itself to a little dead fish, and sucks out its eyes, and finally comes to rest upon the broad leaf of an iris, the point of its shell still trembling with the movement of the water. A boat-bug that has grown tired and drawn in its oars also composes itself to rest. Slowly it sinks to the bottom of the water, where it settles down comfortably and with discrimination among caddis-worms, plenorbis, and young salamanders. Even a water-beetle that is in a hurry and, with its head in the mud, is fussing about everywhere, is roughly tossed aside by the powerful palpi. Up on the clear surface swims the grebe. Its back is dark, the head with the beautiful ruffle round its neck, poised high, but breast and belly are a glistening silvery white. It never goes on shore, never even ventures into shallow water, for it must be where it can dive without hindrance. On its back it carries its tiny young, holding its wings protectingly round them as they lie buried in its back feathers, as in a cushioned hollow. The male swims beside them and dives after food, which he puts into the gaping mouths of the young as they chirp and flap their little stumpy wings. Grim knows the divers well, and they know her, or so, at least, they think. This morning, however, in her insatiable hunger, she sets her teeth into a webbed foot and upsets the little boat, so that all the young ones fall out. With the greatest possible speed, she gulps down the whole flock, and then, more or less appeased, goes to the bottom having learnt, feathers do not disagree with her at all. Until next morning she found herself just as hungry again. Then she was fortunate enough to gain fresh experience about feathers. In the early dawn, while the rays from the rising sun shed their peculiar colours over the bog, and made it shine with green and yellow, with purple and indigo, she made a dash at a fish on the surface, without suspecting that up in the air above her there was a winged rival who also desired the booty. The turn swooped headlong downwards as Grim leapt headlong upwards, and the mouths of the two spoilers closed at the same moment over the little fish.
Grim, however, opened her mouth the wider, and closed it with the greater force, and she bit with a voracious violence as great as if she were about to eat the carcass of an ox. She got the fish and the tern's head in the same mouthful, noticed that she was well laden, and backed downwards, drawing the bird with her into deep water, where she swallowed her strange prey. What an immense blessing fish with feathers were! For several days she felt so thoroughly satisfied. From that time she considered every creature upon the surface of the water as her lawful booty. No sooner did a wild duck drop onto the water in its evening flight than Grim darted up after it from her hole in the mud. At intervals of a day she took both the grebes and cleared the creeks of coots and a couple of young storks that had come for the purpose of learning to fish. But still the craving for food allowed her no rest. She had to be constantly extending her domain and finding new territory. See the marsh now that July has come. July, luxuriant mature, with clouds for hips and swelling breasts, and a sun that seems weary of journeying. Like sea-birds that have no air under their wings for their flight, come puffs of wind, throwing themselves into peat-bogs and marsh-pools. The air is one continuous drowsy hum of flies and gnats, and the reed-warbler is in full voice. Grim lies dozing in the tepid water, and sees the world above her indistinctly and uncertainly as through thick grass. She only notices that out of the shining blue up there, there now and then appears a little dark shadow. It comes down suddenly, pauses for an instant as it touches the water, and is gone again. It is something alive, she guesses. Something for her. Wherefore she disguises her torpedo body and awaits her opportunity. A moment later, the vegetation trembles. The thick masses of sphagnum moss bulge out like clouds. A storm rises on the bottom. The heap of moss lifts, the surface of the water rocks, and is suddenly broken by a splash, as Grim darts up at the very moment that a swallow, with a graceful swing, skims a gnat off the water. The surface grows calm. The bubbles float off and burst before reaching the bank, while Grim sinks back into her bed with the bird on its way through her gullet. The water-beetles and gnats were jumbled together in one muddy mass. Thus, the struggle for food was daily sharpening her wits. Formerly she had resorted to the islands of water-lilies to catch fish. Now there were no fish, but experience had taught her that here the birds came to drink. With her nose just under the margin of the leaf, she stood ready, and she captured many a water wagtail, now the white with the moon-silvered feathers, now the yellow, yellow as newly opened marsh marigolds. 
It sometimes happened, too, that she got a wood-pigeon, or a peewit, or a snipe, and once she took an old, full-grown heron. She seized it by the leg and backed with it, drawing it out into deep water, where it drowned. But the heron tried repeatedly to spit her upon his beak, and in this way she lost one of her eyes. End of chapter 10 Recording by Rebecca Shertuti